0: Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter four. Acts chapter four, and we'll be looking at verses five through twelve. next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh, gracious Father. Please help us this morning. As we open up Your Word, Father, we ask for Your Spirit to apply the words to our hearts. That You would revive those of us who are cold and dry. That You would awaken for the very first time those who don't know You. That they would believe on Jesus and, and repent of their sins. And Father, teach us how to be faithful through this text, through the example of the apostles in the early church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we are in our second sermon in a series on Acts chapter 4 that I have titled, Faithfulness in Persecution. And for those of you who were not here last week, we are taking a short break from the book of Ephesians to consider what I think to be a very urgent message for us today. As I have already emphasized, my prayer and, and desire for this church is that we would be a church who, in the, in the words of Harry Reader, are, are greatly committed to the great commitment. That we would be a church who... Thoroughly understands our mission and who zealously carries it out. What a sobering reminder to hear of death this very morning. This past week I heard of the death of another one of my classmates, only 35 years old. And on the very same day, Anthony... who who is 17, hears of the suicide of one of his old classmates. And this should make us think to ourselves, there should be a great sense of urgency in what God has given us to do. And so we have heard many people say that the church is like a a cruise ship where, where we are... At ease, We set sail and we cruise through life as Christians comfortably until we make it to heaven. But the reality is that the church is more like a battleship. And although we are not fighting against flesh and blood, spiritual warfare is a very real thing. And dear friends, we are called to be engaged in this war. Fighting. For our children. Fighting for the, for the souls of our lost neighbors. Fighting for, for the souls of our co-workers. Fighting for the souls of nations. Spiritual warfare is not just about fighting personal holiness. I love the, the zeal of Paul Washer. Who, in a sermon many years ago, said, I I want to fight. I don't want comfort. I don't want ease in Zion. Why? Because that's not how the kingdom is built. It is built by those who fight, those who fight these spiritual battles in our home and fight these spiritual battles in our streets. In our workplace, there is warfare taking place. Dear friends, look around you. My my wife just reminded me last night of of another popular kid's cartoon. Assaulting young children. Pushing them to be transgender. Pushing them to these things. What is this? This is warfare. And many of us are on a cruise ship. Watching it happen. And what are we saying? Well, Jesus said it would be like this in end times. This is what would happen. And and so we're content with that. But this is not what God has called us to do. What's another example we often hear the church is a hospital for the sick. And while there's some truth to that, how short does that fall to what God has called us to be and to do? No, we are like a military base. There is a hospital for the sick and wounded On this base, but but this is also the training ground where where Christian soldiers are equipped and trained to go out and fight battles. This is where we, we come to the Word of God and we receive our marching orders. Do we realize this? And I know for many people, this makes you uncomfortable. And you say, don't, don't push me this way. I want to live with my ease and comfort, and I don't want to be pushed. Give me more of the, of the wonderful doctrine of adoption. There are implications to those type of doctrines. That if God has brought us into His family as His children, children of the King, he, he places upon us requirements that we serve Him, that we are loyal to Him and His mission for us. But, but not only that, our Lord said, I, God says, I have adopted others. You have brothers and sisters out there who are not yet redeemed. You need to go and get them. And this is what he calls us to do. So we are fighting. We are in a war. But we are assured the victory. How, how wonderful is this? What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell Will not prevail against it. And I take this to mean that the church is on the offense, not the defense. That we are not standing there waiting for the devil to come and assault us, but that we are actually the one assaulting his kingdom. Jesus is is building His church through His people, fulfilling the Great Commission, and He promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we are sharing the gospel with unbelievers, we are waging war. We, We are assaulting the very gates of hell When we go into the public and proclaim the gospel, what are we doing? We are assaulting the gates of hell. What was Paul doing when he walked into a pagan city, given to idolatry? He was assaulting the very gates of hell. We've heard the story of Patrick. The the entire country of Ireland... Surrounded by the gates of hell. No Christian there at all. The gates of hell. Totally secure. Surrounded. And, and one man goes there. And in the power of God. And through, through the proclamation of the gospel. Pushes back the gates. As thousands are converted. And hundreds of churches planted. Dear friends. This, this is not... Radical Christianity, as I've said before, this is what we are called to do. This is who we are called to be. People who are faithful with what God has given us to do. And so I am calling us to, be, to simply be, be faithful Christians like, like these believers we see here in the book of Acts. Recognizing that we are soldiers of Christ in an actual war. Now do we all fight the same way? No. There are different weapons of warfare. Things like the proclamation of the gospel and an intercessory prayer. So, so perhaps you are a person who, who cannot go out into the streets and, and wage war that way. Perhaps you can't even leave your home and perhaps you don't have anyone in your home to evangelize. Dear friends, you have prayer, which is a mighty, mighty weapon And when you sit in your home and and, and pray and intercede, you you are waging war. You are fighting a battle. So we should be praying earnestly that, that God would bring revival to this pagan land of ours. Praying that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest. Praying that, that, that God would raise up godly, fearless leaders to, to lead His churches, to lead businesses, to lead the government. Waging war in this way. And, and waging war by proclaiming the gospel in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our workplace. May we say, with the hymn, onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus, going on before Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundation quivers at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices loud with anthems praise. Is that our mindset? Onward, Christian soldiers. But this, dear friends, is the, is the mindset we should have. And our, and our Lord calls us to do this in a hostile land. And again, I am optimistic that, that the gospel can, can change this entire city, this entire nation. But, but even if God were to do this in a, in a rapid way through revival, we may still experience persecution. And so, the question we are looking at in this text is how do we faithfully fulfill the Great Commission no matter what the cost may be? And I think we find this answer here in Acts 4. So, let us put our verses today in context. Peter and John enter the temple when a, when a crippled man asks for alms. And Peter says, Silver and gold I have not. By that which I have, I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and this man stands up, healed instantly, walking and leaping and praising God. So this causes a stir. And Peter and John uses that as an opportunity to do what? Preach the gospel. And what happens? The leaders are annoyed. They don't want to hear this gospel. And we saw that there were were three reasons why they did not want to hear the gospel. And we don't need to repeat that. We just need to know they were annoyed at the preaching of the gospel. So they arrested Peter and John. And what's the very next thing that we read? Many believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So the church sees massive growth through the proclamation of the gospel, even though Peter and John are now in jail. And I said that we should take comfort in this, knowing that that no matter what happens, no matter how severe persecution can be, there's power in the gospel. They try to stop the church at its very inception, and the Lord brings revival. What a powerful gospel. We are comforted by that. And now in our text today, we we get to the point where Peter and John stand before the council. They are standing before the Sanhedrin. And we read, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gather together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They could not have asked a better question than that. Peter and John have to be licking their chops when when they hear that. I am so glad you asked that. And what do they do? And and this is the point of, of what we're going to look at today. These apostles and these early Christians were were looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Whereas I know in my own heart, I often struggle not to avoid those opportunities. But this is not how we fight. So a notable miracle has happened. The Sanhedrin call in Peter and John if they were, after they were in prison or in jail overnight and say, by what name, by what power have you done this? And, and why are they asking this question? Because they already know what name they're preaching. They arrested them for it. And not only that, but they asked Jesus the same question in Matthew chapter 21. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They know the answer, but they don't like it. MacArthur notes that the question implied Peter and John were rebels. Since the Sanhedrin had not granted them authority to act. But whatever their motive for asking, the question provided an opening for Peter to preach to them. So they enter the temple. Perform a miracle. Preach the gospel. Get arrested for preaching the gospel. And now what do you do while you are arrested? Preach the gospel. This is what they did. But but can you imagine the temptation? How should I answer this question? It's almost good the Sanhedrin worded it this, this way. It left no escape for Peter and John to, to cop out. How did this happen? Well, God did it. They said, by what name? By what authority? They asked a very direct question. Jesus. But again, can you imagine the temptation? You, you are arrested for preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And now you are standing before the people who arrested you, and they're asking you, "By what name did you do this? Do you cop out? Do Do you lie? Do you avoid the question?" Peter preaches, and he tells him, "Let it be known." to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. He tells him that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. By which we must be saved, and this is just as true today as it was when Peter preached it many years ago. But dear friends, Peter sees an opportunity to preach. He sees an opportunity to to share the gospel. By the way, in a situation where he knows it can be very costly. Because if you remember, they put to death Peter's leader. But Peter, Peter is eager. The apostles here look for opportunities to share the gospel, and they utilize those opportunities. Difference, we ought to be eagerly looking for and utilizing opportunities to share the gospel in whatever context we find ourselves. But I am home with children all day long. Amen. Those children need the Gospel over and over and over again. They need, it to, they need to be pointed to Christ constantly. But, but I'm at work all day long. Good. Work as unto the Lord, doing your work with excellence. <coughs> and when the opportunity arises, Share the gospel. Dear friends, we're sitting next to, to strangers in, in public, perhaps in an airplane, wherever we may be. What an opportunity to share the gospel. Do we, do we look for those opportunities? Or do we put our headphones in and put our heads down so nobody talks to us? Your car breaks down and you're riding in a tow truck. What do you do? Talk about the weather? That man may die today. There is a sense of urgency to our mission. Share the Gospel. We have neighbors that we see over and over and over again, and perhaps they don't even know we're Christians. I'm not saying you have to just go to their house every day and share the gospel. You, You can't just say hi to them without sharing the gospel. You can actually love them and get to know them and talk about other things. But do we utilize opportunities and look for opportunities to share the gospel? Or are we trying to avoid this? Are we like soldiers given a commission on a battlefield? And every time we see the enemy, we turn our head and go another way. Is that a faithful soldier? No. I love what Harry Reader says about the Great Commission. He, he makes the point that when Jesus says, go, therefore, and, and make disciples, the emphasis is not on go. The emphasis is on make disciples. So essentially it could be read, as you are going, make disciples. He says the, part of the participle form of the verb go assumes that believers will be going into the world. And the point is that while we are going, we should be making disciples. Does this lessen the force of the command to go, as some have implied? On the contrary, in a way this strengthens the call for intentional evangelism because it indicates that all true believers will be seeking for the lost as a natural fruit of being born again. Jesus assumes that his people will be reaching out to non-Christians and he then proceeds to tell them how they should go about it. The church should be going. We are not waiting for the seekers to come. We are going like Jesus to seek and save the lost. This takes away the excuse, I don't have time to go and evangelize. Because Jesus is saying, you will be going somewhere, and as you are there, evangelize. Make disciples. So, this is not a call for something extra. You need to go to some other place and do this, although some are called to do that. But the call is this wherever you go, whatever you're doing, make disciples. Be committed. To making disciples in whatever context we find ourselves. Now, does this mean that we don't need to go to specific places to share the gospel there? That's not what he's saying. If we, like the apostles, truly desire and seek out opportunities to share the gospel and desire to rescue souls, we should also be taking the gospel to those places and people we do not naturally cross paths with. Think about your desires, dear friends. If you truly desire opportunities to share the gospel and you have the ability to go somewhere where you can do that, if you're just looking for opportunities, guess what? You find them all over. We should be looking for opportunities. And when we say to ourselves, you know what? There's no one around me right now who who I can share the gospel with, but I I see some people over there and I'm not doing anything really right now. Why can't I go and, and do that? Dear friends, we should be looking for places where people need the gospel. Going into nursing homes and and sharing the gospel with people who are suffering and possibly even in their dying alone without hope. I've been in countless nursing homes in my life. And most of these people are lonely. No visitors. No gospel. In your your last days, sit there and rot and die without hope. Dear friends, we should be going into jails and prisons to to share a gospel of hope with those who don't have it. And we should go to the streets where people are flaunting their sins and pride and, and share the gospel with them. We should be seeking to evangelize as a church. How can we reach the youth in our area? How can we reach the poor in our area and point them to Christ while we help them with their physical needs? And as we do this, perhaps we get ourselves into trouble. Perhaps our leaders are a little bit like the leaders here in Jerusalem. And they're annoyed by the gospel. So they say, don't you do that again. And perhaps we are arrested. And maybe even abused. Is this an indication that we need to back off? Sounds to me like a reason to preach the gospel. This is what Peter did. And not only do we see this with Peter, but we see this in all of Scripture. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are stripped, beaten, imprisoned. Why? For doing a good deed. Delivering a demon-possessed girl. Isn't it quite interesting how sometimes leaders hate good deeds? Peter and John arrested for healing a crippled man. But he did it in Jesus' name. Paul and Silas arrested for a good deed, delivering a woman and giving Jesus the credit. We don't even want your good deeds if you use Jesus' name. And so Vodi Bakken points out so we stop using Jesus' name and we call our churches soup kitchens. And we say we're community leaders instead of Christians. Our pastors. So what do Paul and Silas do when when they are stripped? When they are beaten and imprisoned for healing a person in Jesus' name? We read that at midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're joyful in prison. They have fresh wounds and they're praising God and singing hymns. By the way, Paul sacrificed himself. He could have escaped at this point in time. They did not escape. They stayed there for whatever reason. They knew something. But they stay there. And so this man brings in a light and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And so he spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. This man is a faithful disciple maker wherever he goes. And by the way, this was not a vain thing. God actually had one of his elect in that very prison who needed to hear the gospel, and his, and his family needed to hear the gospel. So guess what? In God's providence, Paul and Silas are arrested, what seems to be for that very purpose, to go into the dungeon and rescue a man. But if Paul was not committed to this, what would have happened? He would have ran away as soon as he was loosed. And that man would have remained in his sins along with his entire family. Perhaps my, my car has, has broken down for this very reason. A tow truck driver is going to come here today who needs to hear the gospel. Perhaps I'm going to break my leg for this very reason to go to a hospital where nurses need to hear the gospel and be saved. God has elect everywhere, and He uses us to proclaim the truth to them. And so we see the apostles making disciples wherever they went, looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And I just love, I just love what we read in Acts chapter 5. So here in chapter 4, Peter and John are threatened. Don't you preach in that name again? Don't you teach in the name of Jesus again? And they say, whether whether or not we obey God or man, you decide we can't but help but to speak. What well, we have both seen and heard, and they're threatened, don't do it again. And so in Acts chapter 5, they are arrested once again. And just listen to what the, the, the high priest says to them We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What a thing to be accused of. You have filled Jerusalem. It's everywhere. Well, how did that happen? In order to fill a city with a gospel, Christians must be serious about making disciples and seizing opportunities to share the gospel. This is what the church did here in Acts. Dear friends, would anyone ever accuse us of filling Holland and Zealand with the teachings of Christ? But perhaps you say, well, you're talking about the apostles. This is something separate. This is something different. They were apostles. We don't have apostles today. Consider Acts chapter 8. What do we see? The persecution in the church has intensified. Stephen is martyred for his faith. Perhaps others are are, are being martyred for their faith. But this is what we read in Acts chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the Apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. Saul was wrecking havoc on the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the Jerusalem church is experiencing heavy persecution and some of the Christians begin to flee. And by the way, that's not sinful. Their lives are at stake, and they make a judgment. At this point in time, we're leaving to some place that is not as hostile. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I will say this, guess what? The apostles did not leave, because not all of them left. They were all scattered, except for the apostles, because leaders don't abandon the flock. The apostles would not abandon the flock, even in the face of persecution. But it was not wrong for other believers to leave. So they do. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. But we read in verse 4 that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Don't they get it? Don't they know that people are being uh, being killed because of that? And now they take that teaching someplace else? Oh dear friends, if we if we if we leave the city, if we leave the country because of persecution, that's no excuse to not take the gospel with you. That's what they do. They're fleeing persecution and preaching the gospel everywhere they go. And by the way, does this mean that they were all preaching they were all preaching, including the women? Because we have to define these things today. This word used for preaching is not the ordinary word for preaching, as in heralding. It's a a word that means that they were announcing the good news wherever they went. They were not all preachers. These were all the Christians who were scattered. But, in verse 5, we read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, Philip is preaching, as I'm preaching right now. And the Greek word there is different. It's a word that means heralding. It's the same word that that Paul uses when he tells Timothy to preach the word. By the way, Philip is not an elder. He's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. This is Philip the deacon. Set aside for this in in Acts chapter 6. So there is no elder, there's no pastor, there is no apostle with them. Christians and at least one deacon flee to Samaria and, and while they are there, they spread the gospel like wildfire. That was not the apostles. It was not even pastors. It was the Christians who fled. And at least one deacon And what happens because of this? And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The city was filled with joy, which I take to mean the city was converted. Because why would you be rejoicing in a gospel that people brought to you because they were being murdered for it, unless it changed your very heart? They brought joy to the city through salvation. The the proclamation of the gospel in Samaria had, had, had made the whole city filled with joy. Dear friends, if we want our cities to be filled with joy, we must be willing to preach a gospel that some find annoying. Because without the annoyance of the gospel, there is no joy. What what, what were we just talking about this morning? What what did Jeremy mention? He he goes to the Pride Fest and and nobody there seems to have joy, even though they are getting everything they want. They're being celebrated right now in their sins. Where is the joy? You can access porn or drugs or alcohol, whatever you want, and have your fill, but where is the joy? There isn't any. There's suicide and and psychiatric drugs. That's what we have. Drinking ourselves to death. Because we can't find joy and satisfaction. Dear friends, the the, the answer is simple. Where in our Bibles does it ever say that a person finds joy once they obtain the sin that they desire? Nowhere. It only brings judgment. I love how Spurgeon puts it. He says, God punishes nations in this present life Seeing that there will be no resurrection for nations as nations and no judgment day for nations as nations. They are judged in time and their sins are followed up by national judgments. When nations are taking joy in their sin. Does it bring about joy? No. No. It brings about judgment. And God forbid that that He sends judgment to our cities and to our nation and we fail to warn people of this. Because we want them to have a good time and we don't want to disturb them or bother them. Dear friends, may we be faithful in warning everyone around us. Of judgment. Do you desire for other people to, to actually experience joy? I and mean, if you're a decent human being, you desire for, for other people to experience joy. And if you love people, if you love the lost, you, you want them to, to not be hopeless. You want them to experience joy. But what happens when a gospel is taken to a city? and the Lord blesses the proclamation of the gospel, the city is filled with joy. We can think of Britain before the Great Awakening on the verge of a French-style revolution and what changed the proclamation of the gospel. Men like Whitfield and Wesley John Wesley riding 18,000 miles a year on horseback to preach the gospel five, six times a day. George Whitfield preaching the gospel five to six times a day. And thousands upon thousands of people being converted. And it changed the very trajectory of their nation. Is this not the same gospel we have? What happens there, friends, if you and I begin to proclaim the gospel to to those around us zealously and wherever we go, whatever we do, we we, we look for opportunities to to make disciples and we go out into the streets and desire to to make disciples, what happens? The gospel is actually powerful. It changes hearts. It changes nations. Do, Do we believe this? If we do, what are we doing? Lloyd Jones put it this way You see a man walking down the street, and he has a condition. You recognize that condition because you yourself once had it, and you went to all types of doctors, and they could, none of them could heal you. There was never a cure. No matter what you sought, you could not be cured of your condition, but but one day someone introduces you to a cure and you are healed. And you see a man walking down the street and you recognize his condition. And you look at him and you say, I know his condition, and I know the cure. How hateful do we have to be to walk past him and not tell him about the remedy? What is so important in our lives? What what are we trying to get to? If we have experienced this grace, if we have experienced the the benefits and the joy and the love of, of being adopted as children of God, do we not want that for others who are sons and daughters of wrath? Dear friends, if we want our city to be filled with joy, to be filled with people who are experiencing the joy of Christ, this means that it must be filled with the gospel. And if our city is to be filled with the gospel, this means that this very church must be committed to making disciples in whatever context we find ourselves. And this means that us as individuals, must be looking for and seizing opportunities to share the gospel, to point people to Christ. That is what the apostles did. And that is what the early church did. And may we do likewise. May we be children of God. Children of the King. Soldiers of Of the king who are obedient to our marching orders. And we will have to leave it here today. But next week we will consider this this actual gospel that that Peter preaches. And and why it was effective. And the main part of all of this. the, The fact that Peter was filled with the spirit before he preached. This was not the Peter pre-Pentecost. This was not the Peter who cowered to a servant girl. This was a different man. A man empowered, emboldened by the Holy Spirit. Because, and, and this is important for us to understand because we are not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps here. We are saying we need to go out and be good soldiers of the King. But what I am not saying is that the power lies within us. Dear friends, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to work. But God is a God of means, and He uses people fulfilling their duties to bring about His results. How can they believe unless they hear? We need to open our mouths. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I... Confess my own failures with what I preach today. That many times in my life I have avoided opportunities to share the gospel with others. Whether it be from being a coward or or simply not wanting to give my time to others. Father, I confess my own sins to you, my shortcomings to you, and ask you to to forgive me for that and help me to be a leader in this area. Help me to be faithful to you. To be faithful to, to the marching orders that you've given us. And I pray this for each and every person here. And oh God, we know that we can proclaim the gospel and that it will fall upon deaf ears unless you open up their eyes and hearts to you. So Father, we do ask that you would do a mighty work here in Holland. That you would save many souls. That you would, would, would give us a zeal to go out and share the gospel and make disciples in all of our lives, and that You would bless those labors with success, Father, in seeing souls brought to You. As Spurgeon said, may we be greedy for souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.